Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We talk about the political fight raging next door in Alberta. The Alberta Sovereignty Act. This is Bill number one in front of the Alberta legislature right now. The Alberta Sovereignty Act. Oh, man, how controversial is this? This legislation would allow the province uh, to not enforce federal laws. A cabinet would be allowed to uh, it direct municipalities, police forces, secondary schools, school districts, health authorities do not enforce federal laws that go against the interests of Alberta. What a fight over this now. Now, there's some other provinces have taken kind of similar measures in Saskatchewan. They've got a Saskatchewan First Act. What about B.C.? Should B.C. have a B.C. Sovereignty Act? I'm going to talk about that here in a moment. Have a listen to this here now. Danielle Smith, the Alberta Premier here on the Alberta Sovereignty Act, saying, I'm not going to back down on this. Have a listen. But I will never apologize for defending Albertans against federal actions harmful to our province. Okay. Now, she is indicating on the weekend, though, that she might do a little rewrite on this bill here after some of the backlash. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Trevor Boland. Trevor is the leader of the B.C. Conservative Party, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Trevor, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, Trevor, I know you're following this closely next door and our friends in Alberta. What do you think of that sovereignty act there? You know, I think, I think as we, you know, you just mentioned it, they, they rolled it out. I think they rolled it out maybe a little stronger um, than they should have. And, and now they're, you know, they're backpedaling, looking, making some changes. I think, um, in all honesty, when you look at Saskatchewan First Act, uh, that, you know, that follows very closely with what, what Quebec's always done, which is, you know, building a nation in a nation. And I think that, you know, BC shouldn't dismiss this. I think, you know, I don't think we're going to jump on the, the Alberta bandwagon and, and, and make this as strong as it is to just violate all federal laws that they choose, you know, not to follow. But I think there is something to be said about making sure it's a, a made in BC or a BC first plan. Okay, so you would support, okay, maybe not a BC sovereignty act, the same as Alberta, but what, a BC first act or, or some sort of provincial legislation to, pre- what, to protect? What, why, would, why do we need that? You know what I mean? I think I think you know. You look at what's happened in the, in the past few years, and and in the last general election, some of our, our strongest platforms that, that resonated the most with people was the fact that it, it should be BC first. It should be British Columbians first on job sites that are happening in BC. It should be the ability to protect the interests of BC corporations and, and ensuring the the wealth and growth of, of the, the population of British Columbia first and foremost. And and you know I, I think that that somewhere along the way we've lost that, and, and it's become more of a 
of, a, of all of us together. And, and that, that, that's not paying British Columbians bills. And, and when times are a little bit tougher and you start to see what's happening in, in markets like, you know, in the south or on the island or, you know, creeping up into the Okanagan, you start to understand that, that we need to ensure British Columbia's first. Okay, can you give me an example of that? Like, where do you think the, maybe the federal government is holding back BC's potential but on, on development of our natural resources, I imagine, be top of your list? That would be absolutely the top of my list. And, and yeah. I think we've seen that with forestry. Um, you know, we, we've certainly seen that with, with liquid natural gas. I mean, when you're looking at, at the northern part of the province, um, who our trading partners as, um, you know, who's been approved in order to, um, you know, to build um, incoming facilities for LNG. You know, we need to look at, you know, how can how can BC secure its future and, and, and the best future it, it's available for its people. And, and that's by ensuring that it's done a nation of the nation. You know, even you look at Quebec, Quebec has their own governing laws for uh, immigration. And, and Alberta is now doing a very similar pilot project where they're, you know, doing approval for provincial programs. BC is still under federal guidelines. And, and we just sit here and, and wait. So you think that, how did you describe it? BC should be a nation within a nation? Is that what you BC should be a nation within a nation. And, and, you know, we don't need to look any farther than Quebec uh, in order to look at that because they've operated under this, this um, you know, almost this, this um, scale for, for quite a few years. Speaking of Trevor Bolin, leader of the BC Conservative Party, Alberta, going with the Alberta Sovereignty Act. Should BC do something similar here? One of the things that Alberta has said that they're really angry about with the feds right now are the gun measures that the Justin Trudeau government has come in, especially what started out as Trudeau saying that they were going to ban assault weapons or assault-style weapons. Now we're getting this full list of some of the firearms that are being banned, and they include, like, hunting rifles and hunting shotguns. You know... Uh, you got Alberta saying that they would they want the RCMP to not enforce federal gun laws. What do you what do you think of that? Does BC have a stake in this, in your opinion, too? I think they do, and and I, I mean again, it's when you look at it, it's being it is hunting rifles, you know. So whether oh. whether you or I disagree or agree that people should own assault rifles is beside the point. But when you're looking at some of the most basic of hunting rifles that they want to start uh, collecting throughout Canada. The, the federal government and, and Justin Trudeau's liberals need to start to understand that each province is unique. I mean, heck, Mike, even even the differences between the north of BC and the south of BC are completely you know unique. Sometimes let it let it be provincial. And and you know, I think that if the feds would would actually listen to the provincial counterparts, similar to you know provincial counterparts listening to municipalities, I don't think you'd see that that we'd have to have sovereign acts and we'd have to have you know, the right to violate federal laws because there'd be communication about what's best for that province or what's best for that municipality. And, and that's what we need to get back to is, is, you know, less big parties and more people. Okay, well, I would agree with you. I, I think some of the the firearms that have been listed here by the feds are going way too far. I mean, I just think this is overreach on some of these, like, hunting rifles, hunting shotguns. Are you kidding me? Like, they said they weren't going to do this. So I think it is going too far. But... You know, the federal government does have jurisdiction over national firearms legislation, the criminal code of Canada. And here you've got Alberta next door with their sovereignty act saying they're going to they don't want to enforce these gun laws. Like, is that going too far by a province, though? I mean, the feds have the they hold the hammer here, do they not? They do, they do, and and at yeah. some point, never. I mean, we didn't, you know, you don't need to look farther back than than when Alberta tried taking the the uh, federal government to court over carbon tax, and 
you know, do we like carbon tax? Absolutely not. Do I believe in it? No. That, I mean, there's a show on that. But at the end of the day, the feds won because it is a federal program. So, you know, when you're looking at gun laws or, or criminal code, uh, it is still a federal program. Whether they like yeah. it or not, there's other ways to do it than to just say, we're not going to play in the sandbox. Inflation now. Now, we've talked about a lot of inflation on the show over the past few months. Inflation running high. Let's take a look at the most recent numbers here from StatsCan. 6.9% inflation rate running around right now. You take a look at drill down a little bit into some particular sectors of the economy. Inflation up even higher than that. So food prices, this is where it hits everybody for sure. Food prices up, double-digit inflation uh, for food prices in Canada. Now, what is driving it? What is causing this inflation? Is it excessive government spending? Some people have said that. Pierre Polyev has said that. The federal conservative leader have a listen to him here in the House of Commons recently saying we're not going to vote for any more spending by the Trudeau government. This inflationary scheme triples, triples, triples the tax on home heat, gas and groceries and adds $20 billion of inflationary spending that will drive up the cost of living and we will vote against this inflationary scheme. Okay, so he says that government spending is driving up inflation. But wait a minute. Is it really excessive corporate profits that are driving inflation? Check out this report now from the Center for Future Work. They took a look at profits in 15 key sectors of the Canadian economy. Way up. Profits up across the board. Is that what's driving inflation in the country? greedy corporate profiteers let's discuss this now we got a great panel for you jim stanford is an economist center for future work he's the author of that report hi jim hello mike thanks a lot for coming on again franco terrazano federal director canadian taxpayers federation franco thank you for coming on again hey thanks for having me on all right, gentlemen, thank you to both of you. Jim, let me go to you first. Tell me about this report that shows these uh, profits way up across the board here. What did you find out? Well, Mike, we've known for some time that uh, business profits in Canada were growing to record levels, even as the prices that Canadians pay for stuff uh, was were taking off with this inflationary surge. Uh, what we did with this report was we drilled down to find out what precise industries and sectors were the source of those record profits. And it turns out, you know, I guess this isn't a surprise when you think about it, the same sectors that were uh, experiencing the biggest increases in profits, like the uh, oil and gas industry, the banks, the grocery stores, were also the same sectors that were driving the biggest increase in consumer prices. So, in a way, the profits are the flip side of the coin of the higher prices that you and I pay at the gas pump, the grocery store, and on our mortgages. Okay, so I wasn't surprised to see grocery store profits up there significantly, although I remember hearing from some grocery store CEOs, Jim, that said, look, it's not our fault that food prices have gone up so high. It's the supply chain. It's, you know, the supply chain is broken. Transportation costs are way up. Fuel prices are up. All our input costs are up. But is that, are you saying that their, their profits are, are up even higher than that? 
Yes, exactly. They're, they're yeah. right that the supply chain has been a factor, no doubt about it. We've seen supply disruptions. We've seen climate events around the world, floods and droughts that have affected food supply. But on top of that, the grocery stores have taken their own cut, and it's a much bigger cut than they used to take. Uh, our, our research shows uh, aggregate uh, profits in food retailing up 120%, so more than doubling since the levels before the pandemic. Um, so interesting, I thought, though, Mike, um, they they were on our list, but they were not at the top of our list. And the supermarkets have certainly taken, you know, uh, a lot of public heat, and rightly so, I think. But I think the conversation about the role of profits in price inflation needs to be broadened to look at some of those other sectors, like um, energy uh, building supplies is one where profits went through the roof. Uh, auto dealers, uh, anyone who's bought a car in the last two or three years knows what I'm talking about there. So what's happening in supermarkets okay. is a problem, but it's happening in other parts of the economy as well. Okay, Franco Terrazano, is this the problem here? Corporate profiteers, that's what's driving inflation. Your thoughts? Uh, it's government that's driving inflation. Massive money printing, massive deficit spending, and tax hikes. And then you have politicians and you have groups that want to raise taxes, make things worse. But here's what's driving inflation. You had the Bank of Canada print hundreds of billions of dollars out of thin air during the pandemic, during a time when much of the economy was shut down, too many dollars chasing too few goods. Then you had governments raising gas taxes, raising payroll taxes, and raising alcohol taxes. And we continue to hear groups and politicians call for higher taxes. Well, higher taxes aren't going to make your ground beef more affordable. Higher taxes aren't going to make gasoline prices more affordable. Higher taxes aren't going to make your home more affordable. Higher taxes are going to increase the cost of living. What about these corporate profits, though? I mean, they're just carving a, they're carving a piece out of people here right now with these corporate <laughs> profits, are they not, Franco? Well, you know, look, I, I'm, I'm as upset as anyone with, with some greedy corporations. Like, are there some greedy corporations out there? Yeah. I mean, we're very much on the record saying that there's corporations that should not be helping themselves to buckets of taxpayers' money. On the other side, are there, are there corporations out there who are doing a lot of good work? Yeah. And, and you know, I've read this report, and, and profits are up at $111 billion across all industries. But that's a drop in the bucket compared to the real problem. The Bank of Canada cre- created more than $300 billion out of thin air, three times more than what the profits uh, in this report are talking about. So $100 billion in profits. There's $300 billion the Bank of Canada printed right out of thin air. Jim, what do you say to that? Well, uh, this whole idea of the Bank of Canada printing money out of thin air is nonsense. Uh, Banks, including private banks, create money every time they issue new loans. And during the pandemic, the the Bank of Canada was doing it because private banks weren't at the time. But private banks have actually created far more money uh, over the last years than the Bank of Canada has, and their profits uh, are there to show it. That's one of the reasons why we pay so much for uh, for housing. And uh, it, it seems kind of ridiculous to say, I'm going to go to the gas station and pay $2 a litre because the Bank of Canada put too much money in my pocket. I don't think anyone believes that. Also, okay. no one believes that I'm paying $2 a litre because the workers in the oil industry are paid too much. Yet it is workers and wages that tend to get blamed for the inflation. Okay, Jim, when we take a look at these corporate profits that are detailed in your report, I don't think anyone can deny that profits seem to be way up across all these sectors. Is that, therefore, an argument for, what, increased taxation? You're saying that the Fed should bring the tax hammer down in these profitable corporations, make them pay more? Well, I think that the first uh, the first point here, Mike, is to correctly diagnose the problem. 
because uh, we've had uh, discussions lately, uh, particularly from the Bank of Canada again, that the problem is the unemployment rate is too low and workers' wages are rising too fast. And I think the evidence here suggests that that's not the reason we've got uh, high inflation in Canada, uh, that, uh, in fact, a combination of all of the supply chain disruptions and so on after the pandemic, plus the profit taking from these key sectors uh, has been there. So even before we start to think about solutions, I think we have to be accurate about what the cause of the problem was. Then how do you do this? Some of it could come from increased competition policy. Our competition laws in Canada are pretty lax. Uh, we've been investigating the bread price fixing uh, scandal, for example, in supermarkets for about seven years, and nothing's really come of that. We could have stronger laws there. Uh, I think the companies should pay higher taxes when they're making super profits, uh, as they are right now in the energy sector and elsewhere. Uh, that would be a way of redistributing some of that. In some cases, you can actually control the amount that they're increasing prices. We have regulations on many forms of energy uh, in Canada, not on gasoline, but on other types of energy. We've got rent controls that have been helpful in limiting how much rents are going to increase. So okay. a combination of those measures, I think, would make be a more balanced approach to controlling inflation. Franco Terrazano, what do you think of those ideas? Yeah, I heard higher taxes, and I don't like it. I, I don't know of any tax that's going to reduce the price of ground beef that I'm paying for at the grocery store. And, you know, this is what we hear every election from politicians, right? Oh, just raise taxes on these CEOs, raise taxes on businesses. Yeah, I'm sure this time it's going to be Charlie Brown being able to actually kick the football. I mean, that's not whatever happens. I mean, it's not a greedy CEO off somewhere. They're not going to sell their second yacht to pay the tax. No, it's going to be us who pay the tax every time we try to buy ground beef, every time we go to the pump, every time we have to submit our heating bill payments. This is higher taxes, and it's going to make things worse off. So you think that if they were to put a tax, like I've heard Jugmeet Singh, the, the federal NDP leader, call for this excessive profit tax on these big corporations that are raking in profits. So you're saying if, if the government did do that, if they brought in a tax on these big profitable companies, you're saying that would make inflation even worse? Well, who do you think is going to end up paying for it? Yeah, we're going to end up paying for it at the till. I mean, anyone who thinks that it's going to be the so-called big business or the big executives who end up paying the tax, if you think that's what's going to happen, then I've got some ocean view property in Regina that I want to sell you. But look, okay, there Jen. is a solution here. No, but there is a solution. And yeah. I think one that me and, and the other panelists could agree with. Stop giving these big corporations buckets of cash. Right. The federal government gave a Fortune 500 company, the Ford Motor Company, millions of dollars, gave Loblaw millions of dollars, gave Maple Leaf Foods millions of dollars. Stop handing out the corporate welfare. All right. Talking inflation with Jim Stanford, Franco Terrazano. What is driving inflation? Is it excessive government spending? How about excessive corporate profits? Josh in Vancouver. Hi, Josh. Go ahead. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Uh, both of your callers had some really good points. So I think that this 100% uh, competition issue, like especially related to food, uh, I think it's something like three companies own 60 to 70% of the market. So when their prices go up, they can just maintain a, you know, like a fixed markup. It's probably not that simple, but uh, they really don't have the competition there. And uh, there's a little bit here, but uh, one thing you can really see is evident, like you go to Save-On, then go to Freshco. You'll see the same product, like, for example, a case of soda, it might be $4 difference, right? That, that's like 40% yeah. difference between the two stores. So that, it, that in itself just makes me feel like we're just being gouged. If, if one store can sell the same item for 40% less, like they're just, they're just testing everyone, right? See how much you can okay. gouge them until they don't go there anymore. Thank you for the call. Jim Stanford, your thoughts? 
Uh, Josh is right uh, about the level of corporate concentration in supermarkets, the top three. So that's uh, Loblaws, Sobeys and Metro chains and their various brand names control uh, about two thirds of the sector. Uh, And it is how they've been able to not just pass on higher costs, but then some. And many of the other sectors uh, in our report, Mike, are also very concentrated that way, including the banking sector, the energy sector, uh, and uh, some of the other uh, retailing and mining sectors. Franco, do you want to weigh in on that? You know, I have really not much to, uh, not much there to add. I think uh, competition is a good thing. Yeah. Tony in Kelowna. Hi, Tony. Go ahead. Hi there. Uh, my question is, are they uh, considering the profit margins when they're saying, as a, as a percentage of sale, when they're saying uh, corporations, the profits have doubled? Because it doesn't make sense to me that they would double their profit margins as a percentage of sales. So, for example... Let's say their profit margin is 10% of whatever they sell. Well, if you double the cost of everything to them, their profit margin remains the same, even though their bottom line will show double in profits. But that's hardly to be blamed on the corporation that their cost of goods has doubled, thereby their small profit margins, which remain the same, double their bottom line. Does that make okay. sense to you, fellas? Okay, well, 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 let's go to Jim Stanford on that. Like, how do you calculate these profits, Jim? Yeah, I see that. I see the point Tony is making about margins. First of all, profit margins have gone up as a percentage of total sales. In the grocery industry, for example, uh, profit margins as a percent of sales are about three quarters higher than they were in 2019. Then the overall mass of profits has more than doubled since 2019. But even if margins were the same, if the only thing that's happened is you've passed on higher costs to consumers, you haven't actually done anything more as a business. You haven't grown your business. You haven't expanded the service you're offering. So even a constant margin in the context of a supply shock that pushes up input costs should not be occurring. So um, it's worse than that because the margins have increased. And again, that's a sign of the corporate pricing power in supermarkets and some other concentrated industries. David in Kelowna. Hi, David. Go ahead. Yeah, my view is uh, similar to the business page in the Globe and Mail this morning. It's nothing to do with taxes. It's energy costs, price of oil the supply chain issues, and the war. Certainly government spending and everybody's spending contributes to inflation, but we need government spending because we're way behind on many, many things like water treatment plants and highways and that sort of stuff that need to be done. But I did have a question for the panel there. How is it possible that eggs and milk, which are part of a marketing board regulated commodity, can go up so much? That's a good question. Jim, do you have an answer? Uh, Well, the eggs and milk, uh, what happens there is the uh, input costs paid by those farmers have increased, so they've applied for price increases. But in fact, the the food price increases in marketed uh, and and, uh, market board regulated products have been a little bit less than the overall uh, average for groceries. So uh, the problem is experienced across the board, not just in the marketing board areas. Okay, I've got a minute left here, guys. Franco, I guess, what's the bottom line for you? You're saying the government should put the brakes on this spending? Well, absolutely. I mean, we saw a massive amount of money printing, massive deficits and tax hikes driving this inflation. Uh, the report that we're talking about here, it shows profits are up, what, $100 billion plus across all industries. Well, that's three times less than the Bank of Canada's $300 billion uh, printing of money during the downturn. So that's really the issue here is the money printing. And look, higher taxes are not a solution. Higher taxes are going okay. to increase the cost of living. Okay, well, those are very similar talking points to what Pierre Pauly of the Conservative leader is, is telling Canadians right now. Jim, like, if the Conservatives were in power now and they, they pursued policies like this, 
stop spending, cut taxes. What do you think will be the result? We only got 30 seconds left here, though. Well, the thing is, we've been doing that for the last year and a half. This so-called money printing, that's a ridiculous term, but the Bank of Canada's quantitative easing has been over for a year and a half, and they're actually shrinking their balance sheet right now, which means the amount of money in circulation is shrinking. Same goes for government spending. They cut government spending $150 billion federally last year. So if it was government and the Bank of Canada causing inflation, we should be out of the woods right now, but we're not because these companies have got power to keep prices rising. We just finished talking about inflation. Now, this holiday season, yeah, a lot of people feeling the pinch from inflation as they go about their Christmas shopping for sure. Now, you may increase your spending this year for reasons other than inflation, though. Many retailers right now are running programs to raise funds for local charities. So they ask their customers at the checkout, at the till, for a little extra to support these charities. Now, nobody wants to be a Grinch. Nobody wants to be a Scrooge. So I think it's important to support charities that do vital work to help people. But can this actually backfire on charities if customers start to turn off and tune out these appeals if they feel if they feel like they're being pressured? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Mark Gordon. Mark is a consumer advocate. He's a customer service expert and consultant. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Mark, thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Okay, good morning to you. So, Mark, are a lot of retailers making these type of holiday appeals right now for charity? Can you give me some examples? Oh, a number of them are. Uh, the L- uh, well, <laughs> I'm in Ontario, so so here the, the LCBO, our, our provincial liquor uh, uh, retailer, they're doing something, but for, on a national perspective, we've got Loblaws uh, who are encouraging their customers to donate their hard-earned PC points to local food banks, which are a great cause, but anyone who's collected PC points knows how hard it is and how much you have to spend and how much time it takes to collect enough to, to, um, to actually buy food. And, yeah. uh, and another one is Walmart. Anyone who's gone to a Walmart, uh, not only are you being hit up at the cash, but you'll often walk in and find someone walking the aisles, an employee with a, with a jar asking you for change. And you've walked into the store, you've barely gotten your shopping cart, you've hardly pulled your list out of your pocket yet, and there's someone already approaching you asking you to open your wallet. And uh, it can oh. all be a bit much, a little bit intimidating. Yeah, so actually, wow, so someone could actually come up to you, an employee of the store could come up to you and ask you for spare change in the in the aisle? Yeah, they're, they're, oh. I've had it happen to me multiple times. They're raising money for uh, some children's charity, which, again, all of these charities are, are important, and they all deserve uh, whatever money we can afford to give them. The big question yeah. is, do we as consumers want to decide that ourselves? Do we want to decide when and how much and to whom? Or should we allow retailers to say, hey, you know what, we, we know you got a couple extra bucks in your pocket. How about giving it to a charity that we support? Yeah, because the other thing that occurred to me, I think those are great points, is could this actually backfire on charities? Like if customers start to feel kind of turned off by this, that they're being asked too often for donations or for tips. I know that's a big one, too, right now. Uh, and, and you cite a study, you took a look at a study that said, for some people, these type of charity appeals can result in, what, a neg- negative feeling at a store? Well, it impacts the, the, the experience that you have. So if you go to a store, and, and, and again, all of us, when we go shopping, we want, 
an experience that's easy and convenient and stress-free. We don't want long lines. We don't want to have to hunt around for our products. Of course, we want fair pricing. So we, we ideally get all of this. And then we get to the cash, and there we are in line with a bunch of people all around us and behind us. And we are asked point blank, would you like to make a donation to this charity? And whether you support the charity or not, maybe you're just not ready at that point to give. But you've got all these people watching you to hear your answer. So maybe you feel guilty and you say yes, at which point you feel kind of disgruntled because you're like, you know what? I really didn't want to give that extra few bucks. I needed that for something else, but I did it anyway. Or it's just a total turnoff that you're being asked. And you give some line like I gave last time I was here, or I'll give next time I come by. Either way, it can often result in a negative experience for the customer. And we tend to shy away from places that deliver negative experiences. Okay, is there a better way here? Like, is there a way that retailers can help local charities without, like, doing that pressure job at the cash register or making people feel they've got, like, it's been a negative experience for them? There are. And, and a great way is if they're running a charity where they're collecting not just money or instead of money, they're collecting some tangible product, like, for example, a toy drive. If you put the big box by the front, you know, if people feel so inclined they can throw something in the box, uh, you know, an unwrapped gift. If they don't want to, they can walk by. There's no pressure. But if the the retailer wants to be a little more proactive, they can reach out. Uh, A great way is to reward customers for giving, where a retailer would say, look, for every $10 you give, we'll give you half that back as a gift card. So for the consumer, they're like, you know what, It's, it's not so bad. I'm giving $10, but I'm basically getting five back. So that's okay. It's like my, my donation is being subsidized. And for the retailer, it can often lead to greater sales because whoever gets that $5 gift card, you know they're going to spend more than $5. Right. And they're okay right. with that. Speaking of Mark Gordon, Mark is a customer experience expert, markgordon.ca. Here's the other one, Mark, that comes up a lot. And I know you've talked a lot about this, is that the tipping phenomenon. Are we reaching a a tipping point on tipping because it just seems more and more retailers are asking for that tip at the cashier, right? Have a listen to this here now. This is from a, a viral YouTube video. A woman went on online and social media to complain about being asked for a tip at the drive through okay? She's picking up a, a hamburger, gets asked for a tip at the drive through Have a listen to this. I get up to the pay window and she's like, how much do you want a tip? And I'm just like, what? And she's like, yeah, did you want to leave a tip? And she's like pointing to them. And I was like, oh no, not today. And then I just felt really uncomfortable. But like, homegirl, what am I going to tip you for? I'm in the drive-thru. Oh my God. Okay. So I don't think I've ever been prompted for a tip at a a drive-thru. I don't know. Maybe other people have. But are you hearing this a lot from consumers, Mark, that they're seeing more requests for tips? Yes, I I am not only hearing it more, but also I'm sure you as well are seeing it more. We're seeing more of those tip jars in in situations and in environments where at one time we would never even think to tip these individuals, uh, you know, for doing essentially their job. And the problem is now so many people feel that they're not getting paid enough. So the employees are are saying, look, you know what, Our, our, our wages are too low. Inflation is high. We need a little extra help. And a lot of people are looking at this saying, well, number one, I'm not going to pay you to do your job. That's the employer's responsibility. And second of all, uh, why, why, why are you not making more? 
Maybe you should be mm-hmm. going to your boss and asking for more money instead of asking customers to, to top up your hourly wage. How about, okay, it's Christmas time, and do you think people are obviously, we're, we want to be generous. You know, do you think that you should tip more at this time of year, or do you think that would be kind of an un, another sort of unfair pressure to put on people? Well, it depends whether you're tipping more because you genuinely want to or because you're feeling pressured or guilted into it. And, uh, you know, anyone who's purchased something retail these days, a lot of times, especially if it's a food product, you're getting that sort of iPad in front of you. And as soon as you tap your card, there's a the screen comes up with these options as to how much you want to tip. And you're thinking, wait a minute, why you didn't do anything? You just reached (laughs) under the counter and, and, and gave me a donut or something. That's it. And. You know, and um, these amounts always seem to be unusually high, don't they? Usually starting at 18% and going all the way up to like 30%. And I, I think it does have a negative uh, impact on the entire experience. And, uh, you know, people walk away feeling, feeling much like that woman in the video that you played. And we want to be able to, to reward good service, but we want to do it on our terms. And we want okay. to do it in a way that feels good for us. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.